We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 231. Our guest today is a Grand Prix dressage rider who has a ton of experience bringing along her own horses, starting back from when she was in the U25 National Championships on a horse that she brought along herself. Since then, she has also brought along over eight horses to the Grand Prix level. So I really wanted to have her on to talk about what it was like developing and bringing horses along from scratch in the discipline of dressage. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Lauren Spreiser. Well, I would love to get right to it. Tell me how you found yourself in the horse world in the first place. I was that kid that did all the sports, like all of them. If there is a sport that exists on this planet, I have tried it. (laughs) But I, I, you know, everybody gets popped on a horse at the state fair or at camp or whatever at four and five. And it just, it just stuck. And slowly one by one, all of the other sports became less interesting to me than horses and here we are. That's so cool. Did you have other people in your family or people that you knew of that had ridden before you? I wanted to get serious about riding when I was probably nine or 10. Um, and my mom said, okay, well, I guess I'll learn how to ride horses too. Nice. Um, but at that, until that point, she had not ridden. Um, and my mother is now also an FEI dressage rider. Oh my gosh. I love it. Well, yeah, she's probably like, well, if I'm going to be at the barn all the time anyway. Might as well have something to something to do. Oh, that's so cool. Um, do you two ride together? We did for a while. We don't live in the same area anymore, but she winters with me in Florida. Um, and, you know, like all teenage girls at some point as a, as a young person, I stole my mom's horse. Um, <laughs> but, but now I'm getting it back because she has now gotten almost all of her horses as of, you know, the last four or five horses have probably been horses that I trained. So oh, she's getting, she's getting the last word there. That's a good little setup for her. It's nice. It is actually nice. The, the institutional memory of how a young horse comes up the levels is really invaluable. Love it. Um, so you obviously have a lot of experience bringing along your own horses, starting back to when you were in the U25 national championships on a horse that you brought along yourself. Since then, you've brought along eight horses to the Grand Prix level. I think that's the right number. I have to actually like count at some point, but it's, it's something like that. <laughs> it's around there. That is crazy. Um, what, what is it that you really like about that process instead of, you know, maybe some take the route of finding something that's ready to go, you know, proven to do that level? Well, for sure, it's financial. I just don't have people buying horses for me. So mm-hmm. if I want to show FEI, I have to make them myself. All that said, I've I've had the pleasure of showing horses that other people have brought up, at least to the, you know, to the pre-St. George level, although no one's ever handed me a Grand Prix horse. And and I actually think that I prefer the ones that I've made myself. There is tremendous comfort in knowing how you got there. And not just for the actual application of the work. Like I know when I put my leg on my Grand Prix horses and say, like, hey, I need you to pee off. There's no stand-up button in there. There's no untouched, you know, voodoo that some previous horse trainer pulled off that I don't, you know, you got to have the right color underwear on in order to make it work. Right. 
my horses that I've made, I made them. I know that they were made well, or at least as well as I know how, um, which is pretty well. Yep. And and there's a lot of comfort in knowing that I went through the inevitable teenage young horse dumbness and came out the other side with a really educated partner, but there's no, there's no traps. There's also within each horse, you know, what do they do on Tuesday so that such that they have their best performance on Saturday? What do they eat? What equipment do they like? What should their turnout schedule be? And these are things that come over time. And even if you have the benefit of picking the trainer's brain about, okay, you know, I just bought fluffy from you. Like, how did you get fluffy to this level? There's still an inevitable learning curve. And when you've done it all yourself, I've gotten to blow stuff at six and seven and eight that don't matter because I don't care on my path to the things that I care about at 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. Those, the, the value of, I know that Elvis's life on Thursday looks very different from Puck's life on Thursday looks very different from Midge's life on Thursday looks very different from Helio's life on Thursday in order to have them at their best on Saturday. I love that. And I think you definitely touch on an important component that it's not only you figuring out what type of training method works for you, but then also varying that horse to horse because they obviously need different things uh, any given day. Absolutely. Uh, You know, they're all only people. So they're all allowed to be, they're all allowed to be individuals. We joke that at my house, everybody has to go to public school until like, you know, until they can earn the right to go to the snooty liberal arts college, and then they get to kind of find their own path. So by the time they have accepted the basic work and I can put my leg on and they can go away from home and they can hold it together, then they're allowed to be different, but they're not, they're not allowed to start at Montessori school and be special little snowflakes. (laughs) I love that. Specialness is earned. (laughs) It's a privilege, not a right. Yep. Speaking of that, how would you describe your training philosophy? Like what is the most important thing to you as you're bringing a horse along? In all things, my horses must be mentally and physically available to be a little too, T-O-O. So that's a little too high, too low, too left, too right, too long, too short, too up, too down, too big, too small. Because if each horse has a sweet spot, as they all do, for each individual movement, for each individual gait, I want to be able to swing that pendulum both directions and know that I have a lot of grayscale and how I can present each horse and each horse's work. If you are limited by one outline, you know, you, you read on the internet, all of the armchair quarterback experts on the internet say, oh, the pole must always be the highest point and the nose must always be out. If my horse is in one posture for his entire ride, He's rigid there. I want to know that I can be a little bit everywhere within reason. Of course, you know, we don't ride horses inverted, nor do we ride them with their chins on their chests. Of course, of course, of course. But they're not really trained until they can be a little bit everywhere, if only because they're an evolving creature. You know, they're an evolving athlete. And the outline that gets you the best trot when they're six is not necessarily, in fact, hardly ever is it the same outline as what produces the best trot when they're eight, when they're 10, when they're 12, when they're tired, when they're fresh, you need to have all kinds of possibilities. So in all things, a little too, T-O-O. 
What is one piece of advice that you've gotten about developing horses that has just like really stuck with you over the years? Oh man, you know, there's, I suppose it would be that, you know, the one universal truth is that there are no universal truths. Uh, There are horses that really need to, to spend time on the foundation in order to be upper level horses. I would say most horses need to do that. But then there are the freaky ones that are brilliant at four and brilliant at five and brilliant at six and brilliant at eight and brilliant at 12. I've never personally had one of those. Most of all of mine have been an asshole, sorry, a dirt bag at some point <laughs> in that process. I didn't ask about the policy, company policy on cussing on the podcast. You're sorry. good. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but, you know, there's, you should let them be individuals, but at the same time, they have to respect the rules. You should not be afraid to put pressure on. And at the same time, you should be cautious when putting pressure on. So I don't think that there is one. I don't think there's one path. And certainly the hardest thing when I look back at the first and the second young horses that I brought up the levels, God, everything was so scary. And it felt like I was closing doors and I just wanted to live in a world where I was was trying to keep the doors open. And at some point you just kind of lean in that they're really, horses are very, very hard to ruin. Everything is undoable up to a point, but man, you're going to, you got to really want it pretty bad to screw them up in an irrevocable kind of way. So you swing that pendulum too far one direction, no problem, rein it back in. Uh, you know, you make them too big, no worries, spend some time making them small. Don't be afraid to ride the horse and not the plan. Get a lot of really good advice and then take a big deep breath because it's going to be a bumpy ride no matter mm-hmm. what, no matter how good you are. It's just going to get weird. So lean in. Yep. Yep. What are some maybe common mistakes that you see in maybe other trainers making with young horses or maybe things that you've done in the past? And what would be some ways to avoid mistakes like that? I think you have to see the big picture. If your dream is to be the first level world champion, then you do you, buddy. Knock yourself out. But for someone like me, I could give less of a hoot about what happens at first level because I see that the path to Grand Prix doesn't have this perfect progression where you're going to find success at every step along the way. And that's true, I think, of success in most things. I think if you look at corporate executives and politicians and scientists and leaders, you'll see a lot of kids who barely made it through high school. You'll see a lot of weirdos who didn't have friends. You'll see a lot of people who didn't lose their virginity until they were 30. You know, there's not one straight path and you have to work with really, really good people who have done this before. You have to work with people who know more than you do. And then you kind of just have to jump off a cliff and trust that most things work out if you apply enough time and enough leg. Always more yes, leg. always more leg. When in doubt, more leg. <laughs> Bringing young horses along for years, I mean, surely comes with different uh, challenges or failures, maybe, if you want to put it that way along the way. I would say that mostly it's just learning opportunities. In one of the articles you were featured in, you wrote, don't worry about whether you'll fail or not, just fail different. Can you explain a little bit what you meant by that? I was 
17 and I was a freshman in college and I was horseless at the time. And I somehow conned two-time Olympian and living legend in sport, London Gray, into letting me come and take a lesson on a schoolmaster. And she said, do a line of four tempies. And I went across the diagonal and I flubbed the four, the, excuse me, four tempies, four tempies. Uh, I flubbed them. I missed the count. And she said, no problem, do it again. And I took another diagonal and I flubbed them the same way. And she stopped me. And she said, I don't care if you make a million mistakes, don't be afraid to do it wrong different. And I appreciated that from a technical perspective, like, hey, you want to, you know, don't make the same mistake twice. Why? That only makes you better at making that mistake, like make a new mistake. But I think particularly when it comes to the education of young horses, they have to be a little bit comfortable being uncomfortable. And I don't mean whipping and beating and spurring, but, you know, when Fluffy makes a mistake, it has to be okay that I say, okay, we made a mistake, like walk, regroup, do it again. They have to learn how to learn. They have to learn how to take pressure. They have to learn how to not melt down when you have the audacity to ask for something again. They have to be present and available. And so I say, rock that apple cart, blow it. Who cares? Particularly because if all you do is, you know, stay in your comfort bubble, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I really, I think that that's a super good point. What do you do when you're in the process of teaching your young horses a new, you know, like skill or maneuver and they aren't getting it right away? And what do you do to kind of reset, regroup, start again? Is there like a certain, like, do you usually go down to the walk? Do you halt? Like what, what's usually like your tactic for regrouping? I think it depends on the horse and it depends on the moment. But let's say one of the one of the big things, one of my superpowers is flying changes. I can put flying changes on pretty much anything if you give me a minute. And what happens with horses is they get an itchy trigger finger about learning the changes and they start to anticipate, they, they have to learn how to be patient. And what is imperative in those moments when you have an anticipatory horse, when you have a horse who's jumping the gun, whether it's changes or anything else, is that you have to be able to apply pressure and not have them go off like they've just had a cannon fired at their sides. So I'll just kind of flop around and I don't mean bang them in the mouth or bang them in the sides, but I'll kind of slide my calves right and left up and down their sides. Like I'm, like I'm swiping open an iPhone. I'll, I'll, you know, really over-exaggerate my following with my seat, my following with the reins. I'll even desensitize my horses a little bit by, by patting them a little, a little slow, deep pat instead of the bam, bam, bam of, of, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to scare them, but I, I do want to sort of sack them out a little with my hand until they stop reacting to every touch. Like I've just electrocuted them. Yeah. And then I'll pick them back up and then I'll start again. And you have to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Like if you have given it the old college try and you are just absolutely freaking nowhere, go for a trail ride, go for a hack. There is nothing that you teach a horse that is like, so perfectly timed that it has to be done on Thursday at 2 p.m. or the wheels fall off the wagon. Like, it's just not like that. There are days where I get on and I'm just like, not today. It's not our day. This isn't it. And that's what hacking is for. And that's what tootling around on a long rein is for. And your horses are always better for it. They're always better Mm -hmm. for it. 
If you've been riding for a bit, chances are you have the blisters, saddle sores, and rubs on your feet and your heels to prove it. So Dreamers and Schemers has amazing boot socks that are not only super cute, but they have a lightly padded and moisture wicking footbed and flat seam toe to really protect those problem areas. But not only are Dreamers and Schemers socks a great way to express yourself in a subtle way, but they also have an amazing feature and that is the black cuff at the top of the sock to prevent any pattern peekaboo in the ring. The super fun colors and amazing quality also extends to the other Dreamers and Schemers products and those are the Main Jane leather belts and leather spur straps. They literally carry any color and texture leather you can possibly think of with amazing reversible belts, I love the Main Jane belts, and really heavy duty and fashionable spur straps. So to find out more information, head over to their website at dreamersandschemers.com, that's D-R-E-A-M-E-R-S, N-S-C-H-E-M-E-R-S.com. Thank you so much, dreamers and schemers. All right, let's head back to the episode. You're currently in the process of looking for some new horses to bring into your program. When looking for a horse to bring along, what are some character traits or qualities or things that you generally look for in a new horse? Ugh, this is like the hardest thing <laughs> because, you know, you, you think that the sun and the moon and the stars are going to align mm-hmm. and, and the light from the angels is going to descend upon you. And for sure there is an, oh my God moment. Like when you really connect with the horse, like there's a, there is a chemistry factor and it is very, very, very important. But you have to do your homework. Um, and so for me, I'm looking at young horses. I'm too old to start things. I'm too old for that nonsense. Um, <laughs> so I will I will occasionally, for budgetary reasons, get something unstarted and then it goes away and becomes somebody else's problem. And I say, cool, like hand me the keys when it's nice mm-hmm. to ride. Um, but generally speaking, I'm looking at things that are under saddle. And I I want to make sure that they at least tolerate my way of riding. I close my leg. I close my reins and I'm like, here I am. I don't care if they give me the right answer. I just care that they don't flip me the bird and tell me to peace out. There is certainly some truth to the the breeding. I look at the line, uh, how the horse is bred. There are lines of horses that I don't connect with. Um, Sandro Hit has made many, many successful international horses I've never gotten them. I've never gotten on one and been like, yeah, this is my jam. Uh, There is another great Dutch stallion called Jazz and he makes Fruit Loops, but they work for me. I get them. They are my flavor. They are my flavor of crazy. And that doesn't mean that Sandra Hits are bad and Jazzes are good. It just means that I seem to get along well with them. I have also met Jazzes that I thought were awful. And the best horse of my life right now is a funny little... Belgian on top and Anglo-European stud book on the bottom, weird little mongrel thing that was bred to show jump and is this <laughs> little Porsche rock star. So, you know, the paper is just the paper for sure. But when you're looking at young horses, it's as good a place to start as any because you got a whole lot of unanswered questions when you're looking at four-year-olds. The vetting is, of course, very important. I would make the case that it is actually more important on the young horses than it is on an older horse. You're buying a schoolmaster. Like, yeah, it can't be right on the brink of all falling apart. 
when you're looking at a 14 year old horse that's been well maintained and is currently sound and is doing the job you want it to do, that's a good place to start. If four, you've got no idea, you mm-hmm. have no idea. Um, so it's really important to look at the x-rays. It's really important to have a qualified sports medicine vet do your, do your physical exam. And then I look at the feet and then I pound on the back and then, because no hoof, no horse is absolutely true. Um, and they have to have a back that is built well. I'm not saying that everything that trots down center line at the Olympics is a Devon in hand winner. In fact, you'll see a lot of weirdly put together horses, but if the back's not strong, you're sort of up a creek, certainly for a dressage horse. Um, and then you have a body type that you get along with well. Mine tend to be short coupled, although if you look at my most recent purchases, they're all long and flat. So like, I don't know, <laughs> I'm branching out and trying something. Sure. New. And then you have personalities that you like. I like, I like alpha people. I am, I'm always a little flummoxed by insecure horses, but I'm learning. I'm getting better. Nice. Oh, I love that. Um, obviously, yeah, there's so many different things and, and routes that you can take. Um, but I think you touched on some aspects that are also like non-negotiable. Like obviously you can have a personality type or like a, you know, like look and stuff that are great that you gravitate towards, but obviously the vetting, the, you know, the thing, making sure that the horse is happy and healthy from the get-go is obviously so important. And it's so hard because there are plenty of things that go to the Olympics that went to the Olympics because somebody couldn't sell them because they have a chip and they're stifled the size of Des Moines or they've got grade four kissing spine or are towed in or towed out or upright or whatever. So they make fools out of all of us. But certainly for someone in my line of work, like the joke is they either have to go to the Olympics or they have to be expensive for someone else. (laughs) And so man, confirmation well, not the end all be all, it is certainly really important. When you get a horse that let's say hasn't had much experience at all in dressage world, what is like the first thing that you try? I tend to be looking at three and four-year-olds that aren't experienced at anything, but for sure from time to time, something will come across my desk. That's maybe a five or six or seven-year-old that's been a little behind or maybe done another discipline this is going to sound really mean spirited. I don't mean like, mean it like, Oh, I get up in there. I, I pull, but I always put them a little too round. Not because that's where we put horses. It's not where we put horses. Don't at me people. <laughs> but I want to know that when I put a little too much pressure on them, they go like, well, okay, but you know, fine. Geez. Not like, well, pfft, you know, eat a bag of dicks because they have to be able to take a little bit of a joke. If their first reaction to being vaguely uncomfortable is like, nope, I'm out of here. Where do you go from there? They're all going to hit a point at their training where they get frustrated. Training is hard. Training is hard. It's in the Olympics for a reason. It's bloody hard. And at some point they're going to go, well, I, I mean, what if I don't? And if that is about piaffing for 12 steps instead of two steps, then like, okay, game on. But if that's about trotting, I'm in for a long road. Right. Um, The other thing that I do, and this is totally just a wacko me thing, is everything I ever try for anyone, I go across the diagonal at the canter and I throw myself off balance because I want to know if they're going to be like, whoop, you fell apart. So I guess I'm going to do some sort of semblance of flying change to save my own bacon. Or whether they're like, yeah, man, I can counter canter on my head on a four meter circle in perfect balance, because that's going to make my life harder when I go to teach the changes down the road. Oh, yeah. 
I love that. I think that that's, I mean, with me being in hunter jumper world, we do kind of the same thing where we're like, let's get a horse, like, um, like from, let's jump from like here to China and see what they do with it. Or let's get the horse up underneath the jump and see if they can take a joke and kind of similar thing. Just, yeah. you got to poke the bear a little bit to know what's in there. Right. Especially when you're keeping in mind of kind of like the end goal or who you're looking for the horse to be, you know, like ideal for, or when you're, you know, taking a horse, training it up, to sell, it's definitely something that you want to take into consideration. Yeah, we joke about like, oh, you know, that's a professional's horse because it's complicated. The stuff that goes to the Olympics isn't allowed to be unreliable. They right. might have their emotional things, and certainly they're the ones that are just like poof, totally uncomplicated, and they're ones that are a little strange, but they're not allowed to be dirty. They're not allowed to be like, well, you have the wrong colored underwear on today. I guess I'm just not going to do dressage yeah. today at the Olympic Games. So they all have to be able to take a little bit of a joke. They all have to be able to let the rider in. And for sure, that is also learned. We can, I have, I have turned some mongrels around, but it's certainly a lot easier when you start with decent raw material. You've written some articles about how hard it can be to find quality prospects that are bred here in the U.S. and that the talented ones that are bred here don't always find homes with people who can really like end up showcasing their talent. Um, what do you think we are getting wrong about breeding and developing talented horses in the U.S.? Is it just the fact that it's done so well in Europe and kind of leaving it at that. Where do you think that the U.S. kind of is, falls a little short in regards to breeding? I think there, I think this is a whole podcast. Right. So you'll have, to, you'll have to have me back on and we can <laughs> exactly. talk about it. But let me, let me give you the Reader's Digest spiel. So the United States is massive. It is massive. It is a huge, huge, huge country. Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark, Belgium, the places that European sport horses tend to come from. Very, very small. But then let's look at Germany. So in Germany, you have dressage and you have three day and you have show jumping and you have vaulting and driving, which tend to overlap their horses with the dressage world. You have para dressage, same deal. And for sure, you have some pleasure riders and for sure, you have some regional draft breeds. But by and large, they are breeding warm blood type horses to do those sports. So now let's look at the United States. We have all of those things. And we have saddlebreds, and we have Arabians, and we have Connemara ponies, and we have quarter horses. We do saddle seat, and we do uh, the hunters, and we do 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 all of the Western disciplines, plus also the hunters. We have thoroughbred hey. race horses. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with the hunters, but those, are, but that is a discipline that does not exist in Europe. That's true, and. That is a discipline of horses that don't pick up their knees in the same way that dressage horses do and don't jump the way that jumpers do. Right. That's a, that's a funny niche. And the ones that come from Europe are usually ones that either weren't good enough at dressage to be dressage horses or weren't good enough at jumping to be jumping horses. And here we breed for them. And no kidding, because you guys spend a ton more money on your horses than we do. And breeders have to make money. They have to pay their bills. They have to put food on their table. So first, we have this massive country who, with a ton of sports, whereas, you know, Germany's making warm blood type horses for the English international disciplines. So we've diversified 
and and spread our breeders thinner across a variety of disciplines and breeds. And then the hunters, for sure, is like a big, big, big factor because the Europeans just don't breed for them. They're mm-hmm. breeding for dressage horses and they're breeding for show jump horses. And here we have this funny little mix of the two. Then you have the money thing. So young horses, foals are born onto this earth and they spend the next X years trying very hard to kill themselves in creative and expensive ways. And they do not try harder than in their first couple of years of life. And then let's say somehow they manage to emerge unscathed. Then someone like me is going to come and x-ray every joint in their body. And if there's an imperfection, I'm going to walk away. It's not quite that simple, but that's kind of it. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's not hitting the lottery once that's hitting the Powerball 10 times in a row. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you bet if I was a horse breeder, I'd want to sell them in utero. Get out of here. I don't want to be responsible for whether there's chips in the hawks because sometimes in spite of excellent care, excellent breeding and excellent, you know, nutrition and responsible breeding choices, sometimes they still end up with chips in the hawks, get them out the door. And if Betty amateur who wants to be the first level world champion shows up with money first, then that's the ball game. Right. If a breeder breeds 10 Vallegros and they are all sold to people who do not want to go beyond first level, then people like me are out of luck. I don't really know how you fix that. I think that the biggest thing for me, understanding all of those factors is just that I think we all need to communicate better. I want breeders to call me when they have something exciting. Um, and sometimes they do. I actually, I wrote something and, and posted on social media and said like, Hey, can we have this conversation? And damn it, we're having this conversation. I, I bought a four-year-old from Kansas that came out in part of, of the conversation around that blog piece. But I, but I think that it's important that that trust also goes both ways that Horse trainers need to understand that horses cost money and that breeders have to put food on their table. And so any horse trainer out there that's like, hey, breeder, you should partner with me, by which I mean, assume all the financial responsibility and just let me run amok. No, that's nonsense. That's not going to work either. You are preparing for your international debut coming up soon. Tell me how you are preparing and what that is like for you that's you know different than what you have been doing now that it's the international stage. Well, I'm drinking heavily and trying not to vomit. <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> no, and and in all things, timing is everything. So I am making. I have this wonderful horse named Guernsey Elvis, owned by the Elvis Syndicate. He's fabulous. I love him. He spent a year last year doing the developing Grand Prix tour, which is for eight to 10 year old horses. He was 10 in February of last year. I could not have put that test together with a gun to my head. And then he got good at stuff really quickly. And then we went to the national championships and he kind of plateaued and we sort of dicked around for a while. And I went home and I found something in November. I was like, Ooh, here it is. And I went to Florida and my plan was to do the national Grand Prix tour and not try for anything big and hairy. And my coach said, uh, but you're on to something. So pick a CDI. And all of a sudden I'm a year ahead of schedule. So that has been a great comfort because if the CDI does not go well, oh, it was a, weird, a year ahead of schedule. What do I care? And if it does go well, it's because I stumbled upon something in November and the training has gone well. The horse really sets 
sets the tone. You know, we joke that like we plan and God laughs. Well, we plan and horses laugh for yeah. sure. So what am I doing differently other than drinking and hopefully not vomiting? Um, for sure, I think very thoughtfully about peaking my horses for for big competitions. So we've just come home from Florida. Elvis needed a little vacation. He's dithering around and we're doing light work and we're playing with some stuff. But I know when that show is and I've worked back on my calendar to know when I need to start putting him back to his normal work, when I need to start adding in his extra conditioning work because he's a horse that requires a little bit of effort on the conditioning front. And then I'm just going to see what happens because it's really, whether it's, you know, little local horse show, summer series four Grand Prix test on Saturday or the Olympics, like it's the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can either psych yourself out about it or not. But right. At least in this moment, I'm trying not to psych myself out about it. I have other things that I can freak out about. So I right. putting those. And the, and the cocktail never the hurts. Never the bet, never the wrong idea. <laughs> no, it's almost always the wrong idea. Don't do it. But <laughs> this is, I'm, I don't know if you're recording the, the mm. uh, video on this, but this is water kids. So, so we're clear. <laughs> what would you say is an area of the industry that you have become super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about, or just doesn't talk that much about? We have to be nicer to each other. Mm. We have to be nicer to each other. I I love that we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about politics, but Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, two presidents that could not have been more politically different, have ended up being incredibly close friends once they both left office. And they've talked about this that one of the reasons that they are such good friends is because there's such a small number of people who can understand the demands of that job. Now there are a few more of us who can understand the demands of horse training than being the president. But it's a bloody hard job. It's so hard. Horses are so hard. They are 1,200 pounds of flight animal governed by a brain the size of a walnut on their middle fingernails. And we sit on them and we put all of our hopes and dreams onto them and they could not possibly care less. And then we have, as trainers, we have businesses of amateur women and men, but a lot of amateur women who are powerful people and accomplished people, and they want to be good at this, and the horse doesn't care. And they've spent a lot of money at it, and the horse doesn't care. And sometimes, no matter how much money you throw at it, it doesn't work anyway. There's a lot of emotion. It's really hard. And I am a citizen of the internet. I am a blogger and a a social media person in addition to my day job of training horses and riders. And it is staggering. I've been doing this a long time and it has, it really never ceases to surprise me. The depths of the meanness, the vitriol, particularly in Facebook comments and Instagram comments and just nastiness and a lack of understanding and a lack of compassion. And this is, this is the hill I'm going to die on. It is possible to be an asshole silently. If you don't think that I'm thinking nasty thoughts about other horses and riders while I'm watching them, <laughs> you you forget it. Of course I am. I'm a human being. I am petty and jealous and judgy, just like everybody else. But you don't say it, and you certainly don't write it. And this isn't just horsey. I, you know, there's this sort of lack of empathy mm-hmm. on on many fronts. 
right now over the last couple of years. Maybe it's the internet's made us all terrible. Maybe Facebook is the devil. I don't know. But I think that there are so many good things to come out of social media, of the internet. I am able to connect with horse breeders. I am able to tell a story about how this job is hard. And I think that it would be sad if that disappeared. But man, we've got to be nicer. I, I tell people, treat every Facebook comment that you make like you're saying it to that person's mother or a court of law. And I think a lot of people would say a lot less if you were saying it to somebody's mother or in a court of law. I could not agree more. That is such a good point. And it's such a good reminder for all of us, both like, you know, within the horse community and in general. <laughs> yeah. You never, that, that trope about, you never know what battle somebody is fighting. I just had to, I just had to put a horse down and it was because he had developed a very, very rare, terrible neurologic condition. And it took a really long time to diagnose. It was really hard. It was really gut-wrenching. And sure enough, you know, there was there were the commenters about like, well, what if you could have retired him? Or horses don't get naughty because they, they only get naughty when human hands are involved. First of all, no. Second of all, shut up. You don't know the story. You don't know what's going on. You're not here. You're not living my life. If you want to be crappy in your own mind, that's fine. Yeah. Assure you I'm crappy in my own mind, but just, just leave it there. <laughs> just leave it. Just leave it. Uh, exactly. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time and walking us through how you got to where you are today. I think it is incredible what you can do with horses and what you've been you know, doing to grow your career. Um, I think you're amazing and I wish you all the best. I'm excited to watch you as you embark on your international debut. So oh, exciting. Thank you. We'll see. Big, big shoes to fill Elvis. He's had some impressive predecessors, but he's well equipped for the task. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week. <laughs>